This morning, we're going to continue to discuss what I believe, and I have to say it that way, because I don't know what others see in the analogy of the vine and the branches. So I just have to say it that way. That doesn't mean I'm the only one or whatever. I believe the Holy Spirit is moved upon Jesus to use this analogy. I am the vine and you are the branches. To communicate, certainly, you know, we're connected. You're my people. I'm your Lord. You know, whatever you need me and et cetera, et cetera. And we'll talk about abiding and obeying in the next week or so. But there's a deep river, I think, of revelation of understanding here. You know, when you've seen these programs where these people go down into caves underground and all of a sudden, and maybe you've seen it yourself, there's this huge body of water. There's this lake 200 feet under the ground. There are these rivers under the ground. You do know this, don't you? And so on the ground level, you're seeing one level. But under that is the most spectacular thing when you see these rivers or these lakes. And I remember the first time in 56 when we were driving up to New York City. I was a passenger. I wasn't driving. And we went to, oh, what was the name of it? Ruby Falls or whatever. But we went underground. And it was like, oh, look at this. You never see it on top of the ground. And there's always, and I'm going to use that word correctly, always, if you would, an underground or not immediately discerned or understood truth or revelation about God in everything of the word. Now, we have to be careful not to make it so if we don't see it, but it's there. And so when you hear, I am the vine and you are the branches, I believe that there is an underground, incredible revelation here. And I believe it has to do with this revelation that we see in this man, Jesus, which we'll talk about again. This revelation of the inner life of God. So this morning, I'm going to be speaking about Jesus' primary purpose for coming into the world. Once again. Why did Jesus, you don't have to answer, why does Jesus come into the world? Well, we know I've come into the world, what? To save those who are lost. And is that correct? Yes, it is. But don't make that the primary purpose. Saving his people from their sin is the means through which God accomplishes his primary purpose in his son. His primary purpose is not our salvation. His primary purpose is to reveal something about himself in 
his and through his saved people. Are we beginning to see this? Because we want to make always sure that we differentiate, make distinctions between what is primary in God's view, in God's heart, in God's mind, in God's purpose, and what is secondary. So we never make something of or about ourselves the primary purpose of God. It is always from God, for God, and about God. So what is the primary purpose? Well, there are several places you can read this, but Probably one of the best, I suppose I could say it that way, is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Remember how verse 3 begins. Who can say verse 3 of Ephesians? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, who has past tense already, I'm going to put that in there, who has blessed us with, come on, come on, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Now, immediately, do you see the word in? You see the word in because of that inner life of God. Then what does verse 4 say? He, who? What is the primary purpose? Who? He who? Who is he? God has done what? Chosen us in Christ. What? Before the foundation of the world. Why? Why? So that we would be what? Holy and blameless before him. So when humanity, we, we would get this, make sure we get it. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Each of us this morning who are in this room as saved people, we are saved not because we called upon the name of the Lord. We are saved not because we asked Jesus to forgive us or whatever all the other terminology is. That's not why you're saved. You were saved, why, Jamal? Because before creation itself, before Genesis 1-1, what? God had already decided to create you, to save you for his own glory. That's why you're here today, brother. And he did it all purchased at the cross. And he made it visible or reality to us when we were convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, we responded to the revelation that God has saved us in Christ by the shedding of his blood. As he showed us our need of a savior. I'm sin. I've sinned. I'm going to hell. Right. And our response was what? To embrace this great gift of eternal life. Do we see that? So why are you saved? Why are you saved? Because God chose you, Liz, when? Before the foundation of the world. Can we get this straight in our minds? So when someone says, when were you saved, AJ? In the heart of God before the foundation of the world. And in a time period, in the history of time, then you can share about when you were born again. Do we see that? But we always want to start with the primary with God. Let me move along here. We were chosen in Christ. 
But you remember this. When humanity fell in Adam, you remember that in Adam in Genesis chapter 3, God sent his son as the true vine so that in him we would be restored to our original or God's original intention. Jesus did not come to make us his branches. He came to restore us to our original place in God's intention. Do we get it? All right. Because I know we, we get these things wrong. And, and someone may say, well, you know what I mean. Yes, I do know what you mean, but you need to be correct with what you mean. So why did Jesus come? He did not come to bring you into the kingdom of heaven. He brought you into the kingdom of heaven in his own mind and heart before the foundation of the world. And he came to make that reality of the Father's eternal will to be real in my life and your life. Therefore, he brought us into the kingdom of heaven. Do we see that? It all rests in the original purpose and will of God the Father. Therefore, as God's image bearers, remember image, Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. As God's image bearers, we would be restored to what? Second Peter 1.4. We have been restored to become partakers of God's divine nature. Second Peter 1.4 tells us what God's purpose is. We have been restored to become partakers of God's divine nature, his divine nature. Now, why? So that his nature, so that his inner life, so that this incredible revelation of who God is in himself, this is the glory of God, this revelation of who God is in himself as given to us by grace through faith. That this may be revealed in us and through us. So that when people see you, Ronnie Sloan, they are seeing, hopefully, as literally as it can happen in a human being. They are seeing the revelation of God's inner life in this man. Now, we don't, we don't think like that. And we need to start thinking like that. Sissy, you were saved so that God's inner life, who he is in himself, in himself, who he is may be seen in you. Therefore, Jesus went to the cross to make it possible. Anthony, do you understand that? Each one of us is now a walking or to be a walking, living, breathing, vibrant, powerful, visible manifestation of who God is in himself. Now, I know I bear down on this because we must see this as we get into the rest of it. This is the purpose for which you have been saved, Gary, uh, Greg. This is why God saved you. Clara, this is why you're in the kingdom of God. Floyd, this is why, why you were saved. You see... I don't, I am not here for myself. 
you know, when the world says a woman's body is her own. For the Christian, that's not true. You belong to God. Your body belongs to God. A man's body belongs to God. Because Jesus has paid the, whole, the, the full price for us to be God's possession. Amen? After the resurrection, you remember Jesus was raised. He ascended into heaven. He was exalted to the throne of God. And you remember this. He was given all authority in heaven and earth. you remember that? Now, why? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Jesus, the Son of God, became human and birthed into the world as a man, Jesus. Lived a perfect life, went to the cross to die, to bear our sin. So that in his death, he would pay for all of our sin. Amen? God raised him for the dead so that there is now a man who was fully justified and accepted before God on our behalf. He rises on our behalf so that the purpose of God in creating us would be accomplished. Otherwise, he didn't have to do all that. And he ascended for our benefit so that the benefit of God may be manifested. He is exalted and given all authority for what purpose? He says, I will pray the Father. Remember in John, I think it was 15. And he will send another comforter, what? The Holy Spirit, who will be with you forever. He sends the Holy Spirit to gather God's eternal people, those who have been known by God eternally. And God's Holy Spirit comes into our life. We're born again. And he does this so he gives us the revelation and the experience of God's inner life. Holy Spirit now lives in us as the person of God who in himself reveals and causes to be made manifestly increasing in our lives through our experience as we are obedient to his word. So that we, as I've said before, are people whose life is to be exposing, if you would, expressing the very inner life of God. Now, the, the theological term for this inner life is perichoresis. You see it in your notes. It should be in your notes, perichoresis. There are a couple of ways of saying it. You know, you say, well, which way is correct? Well, if in, in, in this city, usually the word G-O-D is pronounced God. Down in St. Bernard is God. So which one is correct? Well, it depends where you live. Oh, God. I used to teach, remember, down in St. Bernard. I went down there. I had to learn their language in order to be able, Joe, to understand what they're saying and to bring their language into the modern English language. <laughs> the theological term that describes the inner life of God is perichoresis. Now, you're going to say, why, why is this necessary? You don't need, hear the word, you don't what? Need to know this in order to live an effective 
Christian life. Because an effective Christian life is based on the work of the Holy Spirit, not based on what I do or do not know. But he gives me revelation that causes me to be able to grow. But there's something about this revelation that when we begin to look at it and think about it and it, call, and it becomes part of our understanding of this God. It's like looking at a television movie of the Grand Canyon. Wow. But have any of you and I haven't been in the Grand Canyon? Anybody? Is there a difference between seeing the picture and what I believe is this word perichoresis gives us a view of the Grand Canyon of the glory of God. So that when we begin to look at scriptures and hear sermons or sing songs about the glory of God and about other attributes of God, etc., and about our relationship to the Lord and his to us, we hopefully will see all of that within the context of seeing it as the Grand Canyon. So when we see this, we can see in the background that we're singing the glory of God or hearing it, we can see the grand canyon of God's glory. Amen? And in that revelation, we are encouraged and we are empowered in a greater way so that that revelation of grand canyon glory may be more and more visible in us so when someone looks at me or you, are they seeing the Grand Canyon of God's glory? They should be seeing it. So what is our prayer, Farrell? Father, cause the Grand Canyon of your glory to ever be increasing in me. That's called sanctification. And as you know, I like to change all these fancy words with other terms so we can get a larger understanding of what sanctification is what salvation is, or what glory is. We always want to be expanded by the Holy Spirit to see beyond the river on, or the lake on the level, on the ground level. We want to make sure we see what is underground. I'm not moving around along quickly, am I? <clears throat> the theological term used to describe the inner life of God's nature is perichoresis. It refers to the mutual, what does mutual mean? How many are involved in mutual? To, I mean, can you be in mutual relationship with yourself? Well, you can. If I'm, me, 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 myself, and I, my ghost, my shadow, my spirit. All six of us are in revelation. <laughs> Man, I got six people going on in here. Mutual means how many? At least two. At least two. Mutual indwelling. Dwelling means what? To live, to abide, to abode, home. In means in one another. So the word perichoresis has to do with this mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity and of the mutual indwelling of the natures of Christ. Perichoresis, I'm trying to follow my notes pretty closely here. Perichoresis explains that the three equal, distinct, divine persons of the Trinity, 
right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or not just three divine persons hanging around together, enjoying themselves. That's not what this is. That these three distinct divine beings, the persons, mutually indwell one another simultaneously yet remain as distinct persons. Now, how can that happen? Can that happen in the natural? Can three mutually indwell one another in such a way that they are seen to be one, and yet each one is seen to be distinct? So we look at this and say, this is impossible. And you know what, Nathan? It is impossible with man. But all things are possible with God. Now think about it. Is there any way, is there any theology, any philosophy, any person who can devise such a revelation that he himself can't explain and it doesn't make any sense. You see, this isn't from the mind of men. They say, with Christianity is another man-made religion. When you look at the religions of the world, each one can be examined and explained in the natural. Do you understand what I just said? Each one can be examined and explained in the natural. Only Christianity has at the core of its theology this one being who has declared himself to be God and in this declaration has shown us that he himself in this one being exists as three equal, distinct, divine persons who mutually indwell one another in such a way that God is said to be one in his being. This is impossible to make up. And the reason I know that is because it's impossible for any one of us or even the most intelligent people to satisfactorily explain it. We can get some understanding. We can see a few issues here or there. But we can't explain. Can you explain it, Todd? You're a man well-read in the Bible. Can you explain it? No. What's wrong with Todd Tucker? Man, he can't explain this. This is basic. Not even Evan May would be able to explain it. Why? There is no natural explanation for the identity of this God. There is no natural explanation. It, it isn't in, in, in nature. But is it true? How do I know it's true? 
Where's the proof? Come on. Where's the proof it's true? The resurrection. The resurrection. The resurrection. See, Butch, how do you know I'm telling you the truth? Because this is what Jesus has told us in the scriptures, which we'll see. And he rose from the dead, thus validating what? Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. The perichoresis also, perichoresis also has to do with the divine and human natures who mutually indwell the one person of Christ, simultaneously indwelling him, yet the divine nature remains distinct from the human nature. Okay? That's the other part of perichoresis, and that's what we'll have to deal with, I think, today, if we get to it, hopefully, and then next week we'll continue. So... Let's take a moment. Let's look at John 6, 38. And to see how the fruit of the vine. Remember the fruit of the vine? Remember Jesus says in John 15, verse 8. In this, this is the way that my Father is glorified. That you bear what? What, what? Much fruit. And so do what? Prove or demonstrate that my disciples. The fruit of our lives glorifies God as that fruit is a living and vibrant, clear and consistent and compelling revelation of the inner life of God himself. And I'll just take another jump for us. And the activity that accentuates this inner life of God is our loving God with and in his love and loving one another with his love. Jesus says, if you love one another, love one another as I have loved you. In this is my Father glorified. How will they know you, my disciples? By what? The love that you have for one another. And so in 638 of John, Jesus says this, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, in this statement, and we're going to begin to see this more and more as we talk about it, and it's going to become more obvious to us as we read the Gospel of John. Jesus is saying that the fruit of his life, the fruit of the life of Jesus, is the will of the Father. The fruit of Jesus' life is the will of the Father. Why? Right? So why? For what purpose? Remember what Jesus told Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9? Philip says, show us the Father, and it will what? That'll be enough. And what does Jesus say in verse 9? Philip, have I been with you this long? If you have seen me, if anyone has what? Seen me. Now watch. Seen what? God's inner life in me. Seen the fact that I am revealing in my love, in my obedience, in my walk, that God is a triune majesty of three persons who mutually indwell one another. If you've seen me, that's what he's showing us. You have seen the Father. 
My question is for me, are others seeing God the Father in me? That's the fruit that God is after. And what is this? The seeing is this. The mutual indwelling of the divine nature and the human nature in Christ as a picture of the mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity. You see, we are witnessing in Jesus, in Christ, the mutual indwelling of two natures of Christ. Now watch this. This means that every thought that Jesus, every thought, Jesus, every word, Jesus, every deed is the activity of both his divine nature and his human nature simultaneously. Now, you see, we don't normally look at it this way, do we? Jesus says something, that's Jesus. This happens, well, that, that, you know, no. These two natures, the divine and the human, are so interwoven with one another, mutually indwelling one another, yet each one remaining forever distinct from one another. That this man in whom the two natures uh, live is seen to be one person in whom is two natures. So that what Jesus does, the Son is doing. What the Son says, Jesus the man is doing. Do we see that? Jesus never speaks apart from the divine nature. The divine nature of the Son of God never speaks in this man apart from this man. It is always a simultaneous oneness together. This means that the thoughts of Jesus are always the thoughts of the Son. That the words of Jesus are always the words of the Son. All the words of the Son are the words of Jesus. That the deeds of Jesus are the deeds of the Son. So that both his human nature and his divine nature are in perfect unity and function. So we have Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus. Now watch it. You're at the tomb of Lazarus. You're a friend of Lazarus. Your best friend has died, Linda. And in comes Jesus four days late. Huh? Doesn't it say that? He's late. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, Celeste, where you been? I called on the preacher and he didn't come. He came too late. But you see, the preacher was coming according to the will of God. And not the need of people. <laughs> That'll shake up and change some of our prayers. So you're there, Joe. You're in the crowd. Warren, you're in the crowd. Steve, you're there. And in comes this rabbi, this man. But you've seen all kinds of mighty things in him. I mean, Steve, look what he's done. 
and he stands in front of the tomb and he says what? Roll away, Roland. What does it say? I'll use you. Roll, roll, and roll away. What? Roll away the stone. Now, when he says that, Basile, what are you thinking? Roll away the stone. What are you going to think in your natural? Hmm. Maybe he wants to see the body, but my mind is he's crazy. Jacob, he's crazy. You go to a funeral today, and the man preacher walks up, and he opens the coffin up. What is he doing? That's my mama in there. Come on, get it real, right? Get it real. What is he doing messing with the coffin? My mama's in there. Leave the coffin alone. Roll away the stone. And then you stand there as this man walks up to the entrance of that that cave, the blackness of the face of death. And he looks death in the face. And he gathers his lungs. And he says what? With a loud voice, what does he say? Lazarus, come forth. Oh, my God. What is going on here, Rosa? And this man, bound up, remember, comes what? Hobbling out. What have you and I just seen? We have not seen a man do something on his own. We did not see, Claudia, just a powerful man. We did not see, you know, any of this stuff. What we are seeing is the Son of God Raising Lazarus from the dead. We're seeing the man Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We are seeing both together as one. Raising Lazarus from the dead. Because they are mutually indwelling one another. So what we're seeing in this incredible story. This account rather. We are seeing the revelation of. Of the indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity. And how that revelation is manifested in his people. By raising them from the dead and giving them new life. You see God is after just one thing. That when we know him. And we know more and more and experience more and more about his personal inner life. We are understanding the glory of God and seeing the glory of God. And that is being manifested in us. Amen. See, this is the crux and the weight and the responsibility and the joy of being saved. It's all about God himself. Perichoresis has to do with the revelation of the indwelling of the persons of Christ as that indwelling in one man manifests the glory of God. So let me finish with this. I said, now because we are in Christ, we are his branches. When did we become his branches? Before the foundation of the world. 
The fruit of our lives is to manifest the indwelling of the three persons of God. And this is the burden of Jesus' prayer in John 17. So what we'll do next week is hopefully continue to speak about the perichoresis. And I want to speak a little more detail about how and what it means in this person of Jesus. Thank you for coming.